You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Duemila anni fa, leoni e leopardi correvano liberi nella foresta. Gli dei vivevano liberi nei cieli e nei mari. 500 anni fa vennero i bianchi e con le armi da fuoco massacrarono leoni e leopardi e con le armi da fuoco incendiarono il cielo e la terra degli dei. I bianchi portarono i nostri re e il nostro popolo a lavorare come schiavi le nuove terre d'America. I nostri dei partirono con i re e con il popolo. Nelle nuove terre d'America gli dei assistettero alle sofferenze dei nostri re e del nostro popolo. Gli schiavi neri lavorarono duro per arricchire i padroni bianchi e il sudore era sangue. Il sangue che ha fatto fruttare le piantagioni di tabacco, cotone, canna da zucchero e tutte le altre enormi ricchezze d'America. Ma un giorno i nostri dei si sono ribellati e il popolo ha preso le armi per riconquistare la sua libertà. Il nostro popolo e i nostri dei lottano da oltre 300 anni contro i bianchi che si accaniscono a decimarli con barbara determinazione. Ma i bianchi non riusciranno a uccidere me, zombie, che reincarno i capi assassinati. Questa lancia spaccherà la terra in due. Da una parte staranno i carnifici, contro di essi tutta l'Africa. Libera. Qui e in ogni altro luogo, ogni nero porterà in sé un poco d'acqua. Ma noi ora non affronteremo più le loro armi con le lance e la magia. Contro l'odio, l'odio. Contro il fuoco, il fuoco. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once more on this expedition is Mr. Chris Dashu. Hello, my friends. How are you today? Also back in the booth is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. We conclude Cinema Nova Month with a look at Globarocious The Line Has Seven Heads. Though this movie seems to be post-Cinema Novo, wasn't even made in Brazil. Instead, it was made after Rocha was exiled from Brazil and shot in Brazzaville in the Democratic Republic of Congo, along with help from French and Italian producers. If there's one thing I know less about South American history, it is African history. And this movie really shows that the struggles of indigenous people against colonizing powers is the same everywhere. There's a lot of crossover between this film and Rocha's Antonios das Mortes by setting up a group of opposing characters and letting them go at each other. There's a revolutionary, a missionary, a colonizer, and a woman they work for named Marlene, who's played by Rada Rasimov, who we talked a little bit about earlier this year when we discussed The Seed of Man. So, Chris, as my co-captain on this journey into Cinema Novo, what did you think of The Lion Has Seven Heads? I'll just say that I'm glad that this is the last movie we watched, because I would have jumped off the ship and let you go down with it. No, I'm just kidding. I, I will say of the films we've watched this month, this is the weakest one. But I also think that's just because this is not much of a film. It almost feels like, and I don't know if, if y'all picked up on this, or maybe it's just me, this film almost felt like a bunch of vignettes. I'm not exaggerating. When I felt like I was not really watching a narrative, I was watching a bunch of vignettes that were each had something to say in their own way, and they were tied together by some of the same characters showing up. But for me, I kind of felt like this was a, a lot of vignettes tied together with a very, if there was a plot, it's very, very thin. Heather, as this being your first time on the show this month, I'm very curious what you thought of this film. I'm always fascinated by films that are very avant-garde, but yet 
there's, there's, you know, as far as the purpose and message is not obtuse. Like another film I would think of as an example that would be, and we talked about this one recently, it was Viva La Muerte. Because Arabal, you know, he's big on using sort of, uh, at times, surrealist and avant-garde imagery, but there's a purpose behind it. There's never a, a sense of weird for weird's sake, you know? There's a definitely, you know, that's the same thing with this film. There is, it's very, very avant-garde in the way it's structured, which I think kind of lends itself to what you were saying, Chris, about it feeling like a vignette. At times, it's almost like a tone poem, more so than like a traditional film with like a bone-tight plot. It's weirdly musical. There's a musicality throughout this whole film I thought was really fascinating. Some films are stories and some films are experiences and some films are the two. And that's the case with this one. There is there is a message here. It is challenging, but I, I like it. I don't know. It's a film I don't know if I'd return to, but it's it's one I'm still processing. It's one of those. I'm glad that we had watched the other films that we watched in order to kind of prepare us for this, because there are elements of this that reminded me of black God, white devil. There were things that reminded me of Terra and trance. I mentioned Antonio das Mortes, and it just feels like this is really where Rocha was headed. This is the next logical step. It has that slower feel that the first half of black God, white devil had it has that idea of setting up these characters to talk to us as the audience, kind of make their case for things, and then have them going sometimes against each other or just have them state their arguments. It really felt like the next logical step for what we saw after Teram Trance and Antonio Das Mortes, because we have these very distinct characters in here. There are so many times where they are addressing us as the audience and just saying what they feel in their hearts. And we know that Brazil had a history of colonization. Obviously they speak Portuguese there. Um, and then when it came to Africa, that had a huge history of colonization. And especially in the sixties and seventies, that was a major thing. It made total sense again for Rocha to be there in Brazzaville and setting up this film. And then it was interesting too, that he set it up with international monies. He, I talked about Sea to man. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, Marco Ferreri was actually one of the production managers. So it's like, it makes sense as far as having these revolutionary filmmakers from France, from Italy. Um, we talked about Jean-Pierre Lyot when we talked about Porcile, he's there as this missionary character. And so you've got missionaries, you've got revolutionaries, you've got mercenaries, you've got colonizers. And I'm thinking that maybe those are the seven heads of the title, because I know in Revelation, I think that that originally was supposed to stand in for like the seven great nations. And here it feels like maybe it's seven nations that are colonizing Africa, or it's the main cast of characters. Off the bat, kind of fascinating with the whole religious sort of aspects. And I absolutely, for me, my, one of my favorite just elements of this film is Jean-Pierre Lyot. Like, he's amazing in this because he's not even just like, you know, if, if somebody's listening to this and they haven't seen this, they're thinking like a colonial sort of missionary man. They may be thinking of like, I don't know, like Aguirre, where the man of God and Aguirre, Wrath of God is like, one of the saner heads, you know, in that film, and is like a nice man. Here, he is insane. He is absolutely, completely fanatical. Um, anybody who 
um, has had the misfortune of, of growing up either in or around like, um, extremely like fundamentalist evangelical religions will definitely recognize some things right down to the baby screaming and crying while he's having his meltdowns about the, you know, about the devil. <laughs> I have personally witnessed events like this in my, my youth and, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, whatever, it makes you a stronger person, I guess. But his like commitment is just amazing. He's such a magnetic actor anyways, but especially here, one thing, and I maybe this is maybe a reach. Mike and Chris, let me know what I want to know what you guys think. But because very early on, we have this amazing speech by um, a character. I believe his name is Zumbi. Am I getting that right? Because that's a thing. This is one of those films where they don't mention character names a whole lot, and or at all. Can you describe him other than Marlena? Like nobody really gets a name. Is he the black guy with the spear? Yes, he is like the main local villager who is, you know, basically trying to reclaim what has been lost, uh, not only to their to their village, their unnamed kind of unnamed nation in the movie, but just to Africa in general. And it's an amazing sequence where he's talking about, you know, at one point, you know, we had our gods and the cheetahs and the lions were free and we were free. And it's like this beautiful thing. And then basically, you know, the white you know, the white man, the white colonials come in and they murder the animals, they enslave their kings, and the gods have left. And it's such a powerful moment. And it's all very heartbreakingly, as we all know, true, you know, this is very much rooted in history. And I found it fascinating to have the animal metaphor, but then you have like the revelations metaphor. And it's almost like religion has perverted this land, is perverted, you know, it's taken even right down to the animal metaphor where something is beautiful and majestic uh, as a lion in nature, you know, revelations all of a sudden, like it's the great, you know, the great beast. It's like the super beast that is, you know, obviously supposed to be Satan. I don't want anybody listening to be offended. I'm not saying that spirituality is the problem, but organized religion has obviously been used as a weapon um, against a lot of, a lot of people. And it's certainly in the, in the case of colonialism, so I don't know. I found the whole animal metaphor very like kind of fascinating with this. I'm also really surprised, you know, Mike, like you mentioned at the top of the podcast, us as Americans, unless you go out of your way to learn history of countries, I would almost say it's it's pretty unfair. It's exclusively south of the equator. Countries, those countries' history are not taught in this country. At all. I mean, South America and Africa, their histories are taught almost at the same time when talking about the slave trade and, you know, the triangle, the the, the golden triangle of, you know, sugarcane and, and cotton and the trade of slaves. So they talk about that in, you know, high school, college, what have you, but they really do a poor job in touching on the history of these countries and continents that have been adversely affected by the introduction on their own by choice of Westerners, namely in the case of Africa, Europeaners or Europeans, excuse me. Um, and then you have somewhere like South America, which in the last film, Makunaima, which I would pay Mike $5 to hear him say it again, or just go listen to the podcast. But they talk, they talk about it, right? Mike and Makunaima, they talk about it with that, the character of the fat Italian guy. Right, right. Him coming over and exploiting the, the natives. Yeah. And so they kind of talk about, they don't kind of, they totally talk about it in this film because while South America has had that problem, when I think of 
a continent in the world that has had the biggest issue when it comes to imperialism. While you could make the case for Asia, and you wouldn't be wrong, especially when it comes to Hong Kong and India, Africa is still reeling from the effects of imperialism and colonialism in 2020. That's the, one of the reasons Africa is the way that it is, is because of the, especially South Africa, you know, up until recently, the introduction of, you know, Westerners, namely Dutch, to South Africa upended everything. And essentially, in my mind, at least, and I don't know about y'all, it put them on a different path to getting to where they need to be as a continent, which is part of the global stage. And they don't really feel like they're part of it because their progress was hampered by these colonialists. And they talk about that a lot in this film. And I appreciate that because like you said, Mike, there's not a lot of that in film. And especially in American cinema, we really never see it. The only American cinema film that I can think of that has anything to do with Africa in a way that feels respectful, or at least in a way that would maybe get anyone interested, is when they talk about anything to do with Nelson Mandela. And it's like, that's such a small part of African history that you're overlooking the bigger issues of what made Africa what it is today, unfortunately. And this film goes right to the heart of it. Are you saying that Out of Africa has no place? <laughs> No, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. neither does Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman <laughs> or, I mean, we could go down the list of movies that, that, that do a really poor job of showing Westerners, Europeans are the reason Africa is the way that it is now. And it's having to work itself back through the, through the people of the countries who live there now, not the people who came to the countries and did what they wanted. Other than things like, Zulu Dawn, Zulu, Shaka Zulu, and then the whatever, I think there's like five movies made about Entebbe, and there's at least three movies made about Idi Amin. We're not really drowning in movies about African history. And we never will. We never will. Oh, no, no. And the only documentaries that I've seen about Africa uh, have been, I mean, other than nature documentaries, but the ones about African politics are absolutely horrifying. And just seeing how colonialism and imperialism have destroyed the country. And I talked a few weeks ago about, I think it was the Terraman Trans episode, you know, where we've got uh, the two politicians. And I was like, yeah, the Americans would come in back both of those guys, figure out who's going to win, and then bury the other one. And it's very much the same thing as far as people coming into Africa, there being warlords or tribes or whatever, and just like trying to back the right horse and then having, you know, set up a puppet government and controlling somebody that way. And, you know, that's very much, there are these two French-speaking gentlemen in this, and they're constantly, actually, I think there's three, because there's one who doesn't ever wear a shirt. <laughs> who <laughs> just always is there and uh they're constantly talking about Marlena and they're singing songs and they even sing La Marseille at one point and they are just the colonizers and there's even a moment where they just have all of these black people in a line and they go to each one individually and just shoot them in the back one after the other after the other and nobody moves from that line you know they they know that their brothers and sisters are getting slaughtered but they just remain in that line and wait for the rifle to go off in their back. This is the thing about that that scene, Mike, that makes it even more sort of strange and, and potent is right before you know they're all executed is we have this whole sequence of all of them jumping out of a tree 
and being greeted by one of the colonials, you know, and he shakes their hands. It's, it's, oh, it's, it's very, it's so weird. Also, the shirtless one, I believe, is Gabriel Tinty, which any of you Colt fan listeners will probably know because he was married to Laura Gemser and was in a number of films with her. And allegedly playing an American agent. I mean, this is another one of those, like you mentioned earlier, you don't get character names and they just really stand in for things. And also, I will say there are so few articles written about this that I was able to turn up, at least with all of the other things that we were able to watch. I mean, last week when we talked to about, here you go, Chris, Makonaima, we had so many articles that we could read, and it was absolutely fantastic. And there was a book that it was based on, and this was great. You come to the line has seven heads, and it's like, did this movie even exist? It's so difficult to find any sort of articles about it. There's like a New York Times review. And then what else I found was like, oh, here's the German poster. Here's the Dutch poster. It's like, okay, cool. There were posters made. But how about some good scholarly articles about this? Because this movie just trucks in the symbolic so much. I mean, what you're talking about, Heather, with, you know, here, I'll help you people down from the trees and I'll shake your hand and then I'll shoot you in the back. I mean, to me, that felt so much like we are taming the wilderness, helping these people who are living in trees come down to the ground and welcoming them to civilization and then shooting them in the back right away. This is a film made by a Brazilian filmmaker about Africa. That is inherently, obviously, due to the the, the characters in the film. It is tied directly to the Brazilian experience that Cinema Novo has really been talking about obviously cinema novo has to do with brazilian film and the brazilian filmmakers and they're kind of telling their stories about you know what it means to be brazilian what it what the government means to the people who live there and what i find funny is those parallels when rosha goes you know what fuck this i'm getting kicked out of my own country i'm gonna go make a film in africa talking about their problems while also talking about our problems because they address both of them in this film. And it's that is such an interesting idea to juxtapose African problems alongside Latin American problems, Brazilian specifically. I know they never say where the character is from in the film, but one would assume he's from Brazil just due to the fact that Rocha is the one directing it. Well, and I think he's speaking Portuguese as well. I think the film is going to be in Portuguese anyways. The colonizers are speaking French. The, I guess what we would call revolutionary is speaking Portuguese. There are many African tongues that I can't necessarily make out what language it is. It is just such a mishmash. And then, yeah, the, like I said, the, the one guy that I called American, he is often falling into English. And so even though I'm watching it subtitled, thank God for the subtitles. I I realize after he says something, I'm like, oh, this really didn't need to be subtitled because it's in English. It was literally in English. But it yeah. takes so long to code switch that you're just like, oh, wait, that was in English. But I read the words before I even realized that it was in English. I didn't even realize that he was supposed to be American until towards the end of the movie. Because I kept, I noticed he would break into English, but it, he, he was so accented. But then he would also immediately switch back into French. It's like he would say a sentence in English, and then all of a sudden he'd be back in French. So it was just, you know, at one point I was like, well, maybe this is just part of the, the pastiche, you know? <laughs> like, I wasn't sure. It's like, is he, oh, okay, he's supposed to be American. 
one thing I really found fascinating, and it's totally fitting that Marco Ferreri is connected to this, because, you know, we talked about Messina Man, just his, the way that he would layer audio, and the way that he would unsettle you. The image itself could be something almost kind of still looking, but the audio is kinetic. And, like, the opening scene, it's like the film literally opens up on who we find out later on is Marlena, on her, on her breasts, and these male hands reaching up, and... And but then like the audio on that because it goes from like during their and they're tussling. It's it, at first it's kind of erotic, but then it's like are they fighting? It's a struggle. It's very strange, but it's like the you know at one point during this whole sequence the audio is like African music, and then it's like silence. You get a little bit at the end of their noises, but that's it. You get like almost like a what felt like a few seconds of their noises, but you're getting all these other sounds that aren't native to what we're singing. You kind of have a lot of that play with sound throughout the whole film, which I think is really, really kind of cool and, and fascinating. I honestly thought the audio in my movie dropped out completely. <laughs> I was like, do I need to re-download this or what's go? Well, I mean, like you said, Heather, it cuts out completely. Yeah. It's an interesting choice. Oh, completely. Well, then you have like, you have scenes. And again, I'm with, I'm with you, Mike. Thank all the gods for the subtitles. Cause, uh, cause there are points where people are talking, but the sounds overlaying, like the, you know, them talking drown, almost drown out the human voices. Like there'll be music that's drowning out the human voices and you wouldn't even know what they were saying if you didn't have the subtitles. Um, even if you could speak, even if they're speaking in a language that you understand, you know. But no, I, I, I'm with you, Chris. It actually reminded me of a quote from Blixa Bargeld, who was in the in the industrial band Eisterzende Neubotten, where somebody was like, you know, I was listening to your new album, and at one point it got really quiet. I turned up my speakers, and then it got really loud, and it scared me. And he just smiled, and he's like, oh, I know. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to do. <laughs> and so I think that that uh, definitely can be applied to the line with seven heads. My real issue with this movie, and I know this is kind of jumping all over the place, but the problem I have with this movie does come back to having seen some of Rosha's other films, which the ones that we've seen, Mike, I mean, again, since I've been here the entire month, I'm sorry if you don't like me and you've been having, you've been following along Cinema Novo, but the films that we've seen this month, Entranced Earth, Black God, White Devil, Antonio Dos Mortes, I like those movies more than this one. And I was really disappointed by this movie taking, like you mentioned, Heather, like you've mentioned, Mike, this is more avant-garde. And I, Mike, I don't know how you feel about this, but this is the most avant-garde film we've watched all month. Without, I don't even think there's a close comparison. Oh, I completely agree. Those moments that I called Godardian in an earlier discussion, I think it was about Antonio Desmortes, that's what I really felt was something like this. This reminded me of like one plus one sympathy for the devil. It just the way that the characters are kind of wandering around. You talked about how there really isn't a plot that is more of these vignettes. Kind of yes and no. They're just very slow to get any place. I mean, the way that the missionary character uh, bashes the revolutionary character over the head and then puts uh, a rope around him and then kind of takes him around for the rest of the movie until he finally manages to escape. 
there there is linearity between some of these vignettes, but it's not like oh well A plus B equals C. There's nothing where it's just like oh yeah this happens this happens. It just it's such a a leisurely pace. And there are times like there were quite a few times where we would just go to uh, a group of Af- Africans and they would be dancing, and it's like okay well this is cool this is fun to watch. I don't feel like Roche is necessarily exploiting these people. But yet, what is this adding to the story? And the first time he does that, we're introduced to the one black man with the white shirt and the spear. And I'm like, okay, all right, now I get it. He's introducing us to this character. But then it happens again, and I was like, all right, is something going to happen? I think eventually Jean-Pierre Leo comes in and is having this breakdown. I think he has a couple breakdowns in this, and it's just bizarre. Like Everybody seems to get a prop, and his prop is this kind of a hammer. It's like a wooden stake with a big wooden block. It looks like he would hit his fingers more than anything if we were to actually use this as a hammer. And then he just goes around with this the whole time, usually quoting scripture and screaming his lungs out. There's one point where he is out in a field and just having a shit fit and you know has his hammer and just carrying on. But it's very, very leisurely as far as how we're getting from one place to another. If you were to boil this whole thing down, I think you could probably fit it in like maybe two or three paragraphs because not a lot of stuff happens, but a lot of words are spoken. Yeah, there seems to be kind of a, a fixation on repetition in the film. And and it, and also, I don't know if this is the, the correct phrasing, but like it's almost like there are times where certain scenes go into a trance state like in particular there's a scene where you have like the men sort of like the military type men at the colonials uh have enlisted and they're kind of marching back and forth in a circular pattern with their guns and the villagers around them and at one and it goes on for so long that you start to kind of look around them and i don't know if that was even the intention but it's like you know because you know you just they're just looping they're looping but the image itself is not looping because the people behind them are obviously acting they're not looped they're there and there's like a little boy at one point who looks like he's maybe three or four at the oldest tiny and he starts covering his eyes and it's like god this is oh this you know and it's like little things like that i, I really like do you, i i do think this film could have been trimmed down it's not a long movie by any means i think it's what a little it's not even oh, it's a long i know it's a long movie it's almost two hours long <laughs> Wow. I know. Well, it's an hour, 45 minutes. I mean, it's, I think for me, that's the problem is, I think, Mike, if I hadn't seen any Cinema Novo movies this month and I was coming at it from where Heather's coming at it, I think I might have actually liked this movie. But I think having seen Entranced Earths, having seen Vita Secas, having seen Antonio Dos Mortes and Black God, White Devil, m- walking, and even Makunaima, like walking away from this film, I was just like, ooh. Interesting experiment, not much of a film. I'm coming at it completely opposite, because I think if I had walked in here cold and this was my first experience, I would have been really lost and kind of pissed off. So I hope, Heather, that you're not mad at me. (laughs) Because (laughs) like, if I had walked into a theater and sat down and this came up on screen, I probably could have made it through the entire thing, but I definitely would have been tapping my foot because there are times where it's just like, okay, let's do something. Let's get somewhere. I understand that you're trying to make some messages here, but we can make those a little bit faster. 
Yeah, no, no, I'm very far from um, lost, maybe, <laughs> but not not angry, not far from it. Because uh, I think there's a lot of worthwhile things in this film. There are some scenes where I'm like, come on, this could have been <laughs> this could have been shortened <laughs> quite a bit. But um, I think even with films uh, that test my patience, if I if I see something that's worthy in there, and I feel like there's a purpose, and it's not, you know, like the like it's coming from a, a place of creative purity as opposed to, you know, somebody just having a, a creative wank, <laughs> you know, um, I'm definitely a lot more lenient. And especially because the, the things that are good in this film, I think are very good. In some ways, this isn't I don't think I've seen a whole lot of films, if any, quite like it. I mean, there are films that you could kind of compare it to. And but it's it's kind of its own creature, I think, in a lot of ways, which I, I think is a good thing. The, the whole thing that the fact that it's almost like a musical, like not in the sense of like, you know, like singing in the rain or anything like that. But this is a very like music driven film. There's constant African music going on, which I, I loved, you know, and uh, and but then you have like the the main like European based characters singing like, you know, you have Jean-Pierre Lyot singing in juxtaposition to African music going on around him. Uh, which I thought was kind of a very cool contrast because he's singing in that kind of like, oh, you know, like that sort of like what you'd sing in church. It's kind of forced style contrasting with like, you know, the native music, which just sounds, you know, more natural. Just something that, you know, that is being created out of a place of fun and not out of a place of duty. But then like towards the end, you even have like, you have like the one, one of the colonials singing to the camera and he's flanked by this gorgeous, like, African woman just kind of dancing around him, even though he's singing, like, you know, I don't like Negroes, I don't like hippies. And and, and it's like, oh, Abraham Lincoln, he was a mad man. He was a mad one that Abraham Lincoln, Adolf Hitler, he was a mad one, too. You know, it's like this shit. <laughs> That's like my favorite scene in the entire movie. <laughs> it's so weird. That... When you're talking about scenes that have a musicality to them, Heather, that's the scene I think of. Right. Because he's singing the entire time. But there's even other scenes where it's like, it's not as organized as that one, but, you know, the characters will be talking and they almost are sing-songing it a little bit, but not in a way that is, like, catchy. Like, even that song is sort of off rhythmically you know it's not like anybody's gonna be putting this on a mixtape with you know anything from like rocky horror or hair you know or anything like that but uh or even like you know um, umbrellas of sherberg like no this is there's it's off but it's purposely off i think i respect this film in some ways maybe more than i enjoyed it but i'm okay with that you know like it's like it took balls to make a film like this and I respect that immensely. You know, I'd, I'd rather see something that is a hundred percent, not perfect, but is gutsy and pure than something that might be technically a hundred percent entertaining, but is kind of just made of a place of commerce. If that makes sense. I don't know. I hope that doesn't sound pretentious or anything. Well, and this came out the same year as Makunaima, right, Mike? I think this one was one year later. I think that was 69 and this was 70. So this is the oldest film chronologically that we've watched this month too. This is the final Rosha film for Cinema Novo month. This is the final Cinema Novo film for Cinema Novo month. And all the other films that we watched, Antonio Dasmortes and Entranced Earth and Black God White Devil came before this one. So it is interesting to see his progression as a filmmaker because with this film, he seems to be going more in a esoteric 
avant-garde direction. Obviously, if you've listened to me rant at the beginning of this podcast about African history, I love history. I'm one of those people. History was my favorite subject in high school, my favorite subject in college. If I had thought about it, I would have gone and gotten a history degree, and then I'd probably be unemployed. You'd be working at a history store. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I'd be working at a history store. Boy. Yep. I love the history store. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I love it. It's so good. It's right next to the philosophy store, which is where I would have worked at had I gone a different way. Instead, I'm just a a podcaster who talks about movies. So, hey, you know what? Things worked out for me the the way I would perceive it. But I wish, since they are talking about these really heavy topics, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Colonialism destroyed Africa. And... You know, colonialism seemingly had a hand in pushing Brazil back as well. I mean, Africa is a completely different story when we're talking about, like, the level with which colonialism had a really, you know, negative effect on the country. I wanted this to be more straightforward. Not because I wanted to understand the film more, but I wanted Rosha to do what he did in Entranced Earth and do what he did in Black God, White Devil and be kind of wry about his take on what's going on in the country and in this one it it, it, honestly what this film felt like to me was i got kicked out of my own country i don't know how to make a film elsewhere yet i'm getting to the point where i need to learn how to do that this is going to be my first experience making a film not in brazil in exile here we go i it felt like there's a lot of ideas being thrown at the wall and some of them stick but a lot of them don't and it's unfortunate because I wanted more substance when we're talking about something that's like I'm really passionate about history and and the way other countries have affected other countries and entire continents. This does so feel like he is just, like I said, setting up these symbols and letting the symbols work. I mean, there's the one part where the black character with the spear that I've been talking about where he's just sitting there completely passive and these three guys eventually show up and they just start circling around him and two of them seem to be pacifists and the third one seems to be much more of a revolutionary and he comes the revolutionary one comes up to the camera and just starts speaking to us and gives his whole thing and then meanwhile the other two are just still kind of circling around in the background and that's so to me felt like the politician character in the white suit that we talked about two weeks ago where it's just like, hey, uh, I don't want to pick up a machine gun. I think that we should work this out peacefully. Paolo, the poet character in that, just being like, no, no, we need to actually take action. And it felt to me like that was what this guy was saying. And eventually, like, giving a uh, – a, we, we have the one character has a spear in one hand. Eventually, they give him a, a machine gun for the other hand. And it's like, okay, we are ready. And he – and once he and the revolutionary character cross paths, then it's like, okay, you know, now we've met. Now we're going to go try to find some weapons and try to liberate this place. But again, it's just you're dealing all on the symbolic level. It's not like we actually have characters who are – doing that much stuff and it's not like this epic story with you know a cast of thousands and all these extras you just have this really bare bones troop trying to represent all of this mishmash of stuff that's happening in africa so i can see where to your point it's just like maybe it doesn't necessarily gel correctly i applaud rosha for trying something different i mean again black god white devil 
Entranced Earth, those films, I don't know about you, Mike, but they felt fairly similar with what they're talking about and the vehicle with which they deliver the message. And this is completely different. This dials in, to your point, to both of your points, this dials in the symbolism, this dials in the metaphorical, allegorical, anything that can be, you know, how do I perceive this versus how do you perceive this? That's this whole film in a nutshell. And that can work. I think Rosha could do it. I just don't think this film is the best example of it. But like we've already mentioned, there is a fair amount of interesting stuff going on. I think it's just stuff that's that's going on that's not as important to the plot as maybe Rosha may have thought it was. I will say there are some like there are little bits of dialogue and lines in this film that I really loved. That's speaking to your point, Chris, you guys, you both are completely right. There are, I could see, especially, I can't even imagine, because I'm kind of coming into this a little more new, you know, to the Cinema Novo <laughs> world, admittedly. But, um... Oh, we're not experts by any means. Definitely. <laughs> we've, seen, we've seen, what, four movies? I've seen four movies. I'm an expert on this whole movie. Yeah, we've seen fucking four movies. There's like, I, I, by Wikipedia's account, there's like 30 or 40. Yeah, I'm just I'm just saying compared to me. Okay, I'm like super new. I'm like a I'm like an infant. (laughs) Explain as you would a child. There's a line early on that the colonial one of the colonial gentlemen say, I only know how to destroy them. And that line just really hit me. And especially because something that kind of lends to a stronger suit of this film versus a film, um, especially one that would have been made in, you know, like, probably like in the wet, like in America, is that, you know, that little bit of line, even though these characters are not, the, the clones are not like hu- fully human fleshed out characters, they are, they're less people and more sort of like vessels for a message in a lot of ways. But that line right there, I, I that hit me because it's just like, wow, it's like all of these problems we have up to this day, it's, you know, people have been raised and it's not an excuse for any horse shit ever, but you, you know, you see how problems perpetuate. Cause it's like, well, this is all they know. I only know how to destroy them. Like, like nobody's ever like he, the, you know, they've never grown up in a situation where they know any other way, you know, they only know how to be horrible, which is kind of, I mean, that's a bleak, there is some bleakness to that worldview, but there's truth to it. And I don't know. I, I I thought I appreciated that. I thought that was very honest. There's bits of honesty all throughout this film. I guess I liked it more than you guys did. <laughs> I I think I I think I like this movie. It's again, it's not necessarily something I'm going to pop on on a Saturday afternoon when I just want something light to watch. Definitely no, not. no, no. <laughs> But I think I enjoyed this. I I liked what he was doing. There's a there's a character at one point called uh, Doctor Jobu, and there are guys who are talking, and they're just like, "Oh well, we need to find the best representative of the bourgeoisie," and they say it's Doctor Jobu, and then the colonizers are there talking to Doctor Jobu. They're just saying all these platitudes, like independence is the basis of amity, and they have him basically sign away his entire country to them, 
And then they're just like, long live the new republic. And he's like, I reckon I'm president. I must change my appearance into something presidential and prepare a speech. And then the next time you see him, he's wearing basically a powdered wig and Victorian or, or like French revolutionary type clothing. And he just looks like he's suddenly a, a pet on a leash. And just the way that they make fun of him and he's just there as like the source of amusement and they're just toying with him the whole time. You know, again, very much like, hey, we'll set up this person here in this country and then we'll do whatever whatever the fuck we want because we have him on a leash, basically. And also he sings. He's another character that sings. Like it's <laughs> the uh we need we need the soundtrack for the <laughs> The lion with seven heads. Um, especially, like, you'd mentioned, Mike, the, with Jean-Pierre Lyot's character, like, one of his many shit fits. There's one he has towards the latter part of the film with Marlene. Marlena, where she's just kind of, like, pointing at him, and he's, like, singing, like, you know, like, sing-songy, like, you know, permanent taboos, but he's doing it in French, and I don't know what permanent is in French, sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but, oh, my God, his lungs. I'm like, why was he not in a metal band? Like, Jesus. I want to hear the Jean-Pierre Lyot version of Black Sabbath. Because you know it would be epic. It would be so good. I absolutely just found him so riveting, especially with that weird hammer. Because, like, when we first see him, he's, like, you know, he's having his fit and he's hitting the ground with it. And these poor people are, you know. I couldn't. Did you guys wonder that, like, throughout the film, like, what what did the locals think of some of this? Because, like, there's a scene that's basically setting up for Marlena's, like, basically the proxy like crucifixion like she's about to get crucified on the ground um she's buck naked and there's a she her head is in the lap of this of this young woman who's laughing but i i don't get i don't think she's laughing i don't think she's supposed to laugh i think she's just like this is just she's not an actor and she's like okay there's this naked blonde woman's head in my lap okay <laughs> you know just i don't know i just wondered like what was that set like you know like i always wonder about that with films there was a moment when i think they're carrying the one guy on their shoulders like almost like he's a corpse and there are uh, a lot of people are are chanting death to colonialism and there are maybe there's like five or six guys who are in on the production and the rest of them just look like normal people who are just hanging around. And all of these people are just staring right at the camera. And it's just like, Oh, we're on film. This is great. And just again, like little kids and stuff are laughing and carrying on. It's just like, these folks have no idea what this movie's about. They're just there. And yeah, I felt very much the same. Like, because when, when Marlena is laying in that woman's lap, I think there's a woman next to that woman who is there breastfeeding her kid. I was like, is she all right being on film? Is this okay? <laughs> because it, there were, there were times too where, where Leo is pounding his hammer on the ground and there's people behind him and they're just like, okay, here's this weird French dude doing this thing. I have no idea what's going on right now, but I'm just going to sit here in the shade and enjoy myself. Yeah, no, that was something that became kind of fascinating. Another fascinating element throughout this film is like, especially some of the scenes is, yeah, there is a lot of dragginess. So sometimes I would be like, what is this person in the background's reaction? I'd start <laughs> focusing on them. <laughs> right, right. It's very easy to do. Oh, my God. But Leo, especially in that filthy white robe. 
type thing he was in. Like, I, I was like, it just seemed to get progressively, like, just even dirtier throughout the film. Yeah, I'm glad this movie was not an odorama. <laughs> well, especially there's that one scene where he puts his foot, his dirty bare foot in the face of the revolutionary. This is not, uh, this is obviously not a Hollywood production. That, that foot has got to be just, <laughs> yeah, there's no talent. There's no telling. That was some dedication. And also just kind of how cool it was to have this era where a film like this would have notable, respected foreign actors in it for a film so experimental. I don't know. I always love seeing that. I feel like the 70s especially were kind of like a golden period of time for that. Well, you know what else the 70s is a known time for is awesome posters. Because this film has an amazing poster. Oh, yeah. Similarly to Antonio Das Mort. Uh, it's similarly awesome poster. Doesn't really belie the film underneath, <laughs> but it is a good looking poster. It's a great poster. Yeah, I oh, absolutely yeah. love that poster image. It seems like something that the Evans family would have hanging up in their apartment. Film posters and, you know, whether it's an actual theater poster or DVD, Blu-ray, whatever, is ghastly. It's even worse on streaming, where half the time they just use what... I've seen films that have legitimate art where it's like they'll just use like a frame for a picture in like shitty font. You know? Thanks, Netflix. I know. It's like this is lame because I mean, in the video era, video store era, you know, that was what would sell a film. Like have you rented films at the time you didn't know what they were, but you're like, ooh, this cover art looks cool. I'll give it a chance. Just I don't know. I hate I hate the laziness of current day film art. Gone are the days of uh, Drew Struzan. <laughs> Those days are long gone. You know, I mean, if you consider that to be the pinnacle, I'm not sure I did. But for mainstream poster art, he was up there. But yeah, I mean, we, we've we lost that completely, unfortunately. And I mean, you look at the poster for this film and it's holy hell. I mean, it is it's better. Th- it's almost better than the movie. <laughs> it's almost better than the movie in a way. Yeah, I don't even know how I would describe this art style. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely be using this um, for the show notes on this one because, yeah, just the the shape of this guy's face and the slenderness of the the um, machine gun barrel going up and just how his it looks like his finger, but then you see his finger, you see his hands. It's just yeah, it's it's really wild. Very epic looking. I love that. I am very curious about the rest of Rocha's filmography because he was a wanderer after this. I think Ken had mentioned a couple weeks ago that when he returned to Brazil, I think that was for the age of the earth, which was 1980. So he had a period of wandering for, I think, 10 years. And I want to say that he actually made films in Cuba. I know he did more Italian French uh, co productions. He also did a Spanish co production. So he was a man without a country for many, many years and just still out there making films. I applaud that so much, but it just must have been so difficult. It's already difficult to make movies. It must be even more difficult to make movies when you have no home support and that you are just this wanderer. You know, he's almost like the the Orson Welles of Brazil. It's almost like he's Roman. Pol- oh, never mind. He doesn't even have uh, Bogdanovich to, to shack up with and buy him groceries, you know? I mean, look, again, he's making films criticizing the government. 
when the people who are in power don't want you talking about them, what are they going to do? They're going to do exactly what they did to him, which is exile him and make sure his movies can't ever be seen in their country and make sure that the message that he has will never have a platform. And they got exactly what they wanted. They did exactly what they wanted to him. And yet his film prevails. So who wins in the end? And it's strange that he is still prevailing, even though, from what I understand, Brazil is still shit as far as their political situation. It sounds like they are in very a very similar boat to what we're in right now. I was about to say, do we have any room to talk? Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. God, no, no, zero. Zero room. But I will say, at least in this country, when people were making films criticizing the government, we didn't X well. Never mind. That's not the case. Just kidding, everybody. It wasn't as bad as this. Yeah, I keep waiting for those movies that are being critical. There are so many movies about living under Richard Nixon's administration, and it's like, okay, those were coming out while Nixon was in office. Where are the ones that are openly talking about what's going on right now in the States? And it feels like everything is kind of coded or half steps and there just doesn't seem to be anybody who is nearly the revolutionary that a Glauber Rocha would be. Well, I mean, Twilight Zone talked about ch- uh, child president. Isn't that good enough? <sighs> no, Twilight Zone is not good enough for me. <laughs> Twilight Zone shouldn't be good enough for anybody. And yet it prevails. So there you go. Do you think kind of part of the problem, though, is that in in the 70s with mainstream American cinema, there were films that definitely, you know, were made in a studio system and got released that would not fly even in the 80s. Because think about like the Reagan administration, nothing that has happened with this administration is new. Yeah, it's like the seeds of shit were planted a while back. (laughs) And and it's but think about I mean, there weren't really that many that I'm remembering, at least that were mainstream uh, American films in the 80s that criticized the Reagan administration. Or the Bush administration. I'm sure there were some indie indie films, but that's the thing. Like I think for anything like that in our country, especially now, but even dating back to like the eighties, you're gonna have to go for your 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 real mavericks, your independence. You're not you're not you're not gonna get that, especially now from a Hollywood system that is basically surviving off of superhero films and remakes and nostalgia baiting. Um, and I'm not saying some of the, I'm sure there are films made within those contexts that are fine, but you know what I'm saying? Like the, the idea of Hollywood taking a risk at those days have been long gone. What was the name of that film that had Travolta in it in the nineties? That was like insanely critical of Clinton. Oh, primary colors. Right. The one that was like written by anonymous. You know, like, that's the last thing I can think of that was critical during the term of the president. Because, I mean, stuff like W came out long after Bush was out of office. I've never understood what is the point of making a film like that. Rocha doesn't do it here because he's doing it kind of in the time and setting. But I've never understood the point of making a film tackling something after the fact. It's like, why couldn't you have just done it then? It has much more weight when you do it during the person's tenure or while these things are going on. At least if you can make them while they're going on. I mean, it would have been hard to make a film about the Stonewall riots, sure. And now they finally made one. Uh, shocking, it wasn't good. But, you know, my point being, it's like, like to both of your points, like, we haven't had this for so long. And with who we have in the White House now, it is shocking that we haven't had someone like really sharpen the knives and just jump in with, oh, you know, 
with knives out. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. And I hate myself for it. It's the same with music, though, too, because think about it. Even back when we had, like, you know, George George W. Bush, you know, people said the same thing that they said with the Trump. When he got elected, it's like, oh, at least we'll get good music out of it. Because everybody, their heads are stuck in the 60s. And it's like, well, it's but this is different, you know, and it's like we didn't really get a lot of great protest music. We had so many good punk rock songs that were taking down Reagan. It was just it was like a golden age of politics and music back then, you know, but then that was punk. It didn't get played on the radio. So maybe it's like one of these like maybe we're of the age where things are happening and we're just not seeing it or we're not recognizing it for what it is. Maybe in five years, we'll look at something that came out last year and go, Oh wow, that was actually really super critical of of the Trump administration. I mean, I'm not about to look at what was that one that uh, was too controversial hunted. I'm not about to look at that one and be like, Oh yeah. Wow. That was a great statement because it was just, more of a pandering thing than anything. And it was just like, we're all wrong. Can't you just accept that? Well, there are some good people that are in the KKK. Oh, oh, wait, is that statement not only something an asshole would say, but also something an idiot would say? Weird. Um, I was to say, well, you know, you're talking about the 80s with punk rock. I mean, one of the greatest takedown songs of all time wasn't even punk rock. It was Land of Confusion. And I mean, they went after Reagan in that music video. He is the sole topic of that music video and like where is that now where like it's where is it yeah like where is all of this i mean maybe it's just instead of making music and movies people are just actually out protesting maybe that's what it is now that is kind of the fascinating thing about the 80s is like we didn't get that in film really at all but we did get that in a popular music like minute work have like an anti, you know, there's a, a very anti-Reagan line and it's a mistake. I mean, there was like, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a deeper cut, but like, you know, you had a lot of, um, oh, what was that band? Translator, who's a really great underrated new wave band, basically had a song, an anti-nuclear war song called Sleeping Snakes. Um, so you had that like really prevalent and we didn't get that really with the Bush era too much. And except for maybe like the Dixie Chicks and they got pretty. They're just called the Chicks now. That. <laughs> That was their choice. I know. I just <laughs> okay, guys. The chicks to me, like I don't, I don't know. I won't even. I respect. I respect them very much. It's uh it's not my flavor of country music sonically, but I respect them. But you know, you don't much really more. Need- your speed is what Marty, the guy who's playing guitar in Fire Down Below, was that guy. It's him and Seagal. That's your kind of country music, right? Marty Stewart. <clears throat> no. <laughs> no, Chris. On guitar. No, no. <laughs> Not even. <laughs> Not even close, brother. <laughs> One thing about the 80s, though, is that you could criticize the Cold War. But then if anybody came after you, you could say, well, I'm criticizing Russia. You know, I'm thinking of things like Miracle Mile, where it's just like, okay, this is a huge what the fuck is going on here kind of a thing, or even like fucking war games, you know? And it's like, oh, well, it's not just us. It's these guys too. And there's a problem with the whole system. The whole system's out of order. You know, it's like, okay, we're not necessarily picking on Reagan. We're picking on the cold war and that nukes are bad. It's like, okay, but we have kind of a a madman in the white house right now. So uh, maybe that's part of the problem. Person, Woman, man, camera, TV. Well, and again, I think this also goes back to when you look at something like Rocha living in Brazil in the, you know, the 60s and 70s. 
he had something to say. He had no fear when it came to making the films that he wanted to make. He was exiled from his own country for making the films that he wanted to make. These are unequivocally, I think you and I would agree, Mike and Heather, having seen this film, but Mike, having seen the other films as well, this is the film he wanted to make. There's no question here, right? And that is not, I, I mean, when you look at American filmmakers, North American filmmakers, especially American filmmakers, when given the opportunity to do something like this and risk their livelihood, because he risked his livelihood to make his films, they just don't do it. They're not willing to risk their livelihood. They're just not. And that's unfortunate. And if they are, like we've already said, it's an independent film and nobody sees it and everybody who has seen it is a champion for it. But if you haven't seen it, it's hard to get other people to watch it. But that's why I think it's great that, you know, Mike, that you're doing this month and that you're and you're talking about this episode and Chris, that you're on here talking about it, too, because that's that's why I think it's so cool to have podcasts. We live in, you know, one of the positives about the Internet age is that we have people like yourselves doing that and, and getting people interested, because otherwise it's like I think sometimes even in the film community, people tend to just focus on like the same films. And, you know, we you know, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of titles we all love, but it's like how many Yes, we all love Suspiria. We all love, you know, Breathless. Well, actually, I'm not a fan of that. That's not my favorite Godard film. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about the Jim McBride film. It's like the fact that you're, you're going to areas that, you know, are overlooked and you're doing this, I think is awesome. So see, I'm taking that negative. I'm turning it into a positive because if something, if there's something we don't like in life, then we got to take action. And that's what we're doing. Po- positive action. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh-huh. us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ah. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, Proudly Resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards. In 2016, is a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heather's, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future... Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself 
talking about his friendship with John G. Abbotson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and, of course, SoundCloud. It is the future. Machines designed to serve humans are being programmed to turn against them. What about these chips? Turn any domestic computer into a killing machine. Someone must stop the madman who started it all. Tom Selleck, Cynthia Rhodes, Gene Simmons, run away. Now playing at a theater near you. That's right. We will be back next week to discuss Michael Crichton's Runaway as we leave Cinema Novo behind and the cinema of revolution for a little bit. In other words, it's safe to start listening to the projection booth again. Right. (laughs) I was going to say the same thing. (laughs) Oh, my God. The self-burn. The self-burn is so sweet. Delicious. Bon appetito, my friends. Chris, for those who may not have heard the rest of our Cinema Novo series, what is happening in your world? Yeah, so we're still talking Seagal movies. I know the uh, the elevated highbrow entertainment that is Mr. Steven Seagal. Uh, but we're talking about Steven Seagal movies, if that's a thing you're into. If not, hey, I totally get it. Most people aren't into it. You know, that's a thing. Uh, but uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Casualty underscore Chris. I have a lot of podcasts. Uh, some of them are with Mike. Some of them are with Mike and others. Some of them are with other people that you've heard on uh, the Projection Booth podcast. Heather has been on the Culture Cast a couple times, just recently with Steven Seagal, actually. So, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Chris, she was actually on there with me, not Steven Seagal. Oh, that was you? That was me. I was just doing a really good Steven Seagal impersonation. You could hear oh. me crunching on the carrots. <laughs> I've taken now in every podcast description to calling Steven Seagal the corndog master, because <laughs> I feel like if there's any term to describe him, that's the only one that's apt. Yeah, actually, Mike tried to catfish me as Steven Seagal. That was very hey, it's weird. Me, Steven. I can tell it's you. Right? <clears throat> oh, never He's mind. like, hey, hey, little lady, do you, do you like conservative politics and hate the Ukraine? <laughs> Well, when I sent you the uh, round-trip ticket for Russia, I thought for sure you were going to take it. Uh, Not in this pandemic, sir. (laughs) You should have sent her a ticket to Belarus or Ukraine, because as Americans, Ukraine is still a country you can visit. I kid you not. Oh, yeah. One of the few. One of the few. And Heather, what is going on with you? Well, when I'm not being catfished by respected uh, podcasting hosts, um, I'm actually up to a few super secret projects that I hope I can talk about uh, publicly here in the near future. Uh, I'm also working on uh, the new Mondo Heather newsletter, which you can subscribe to uh, via my website, mondoheather.com. And of course, I'm up to other writing-related sundries. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. I hate Negroes. I hate Jews. I hate commies. I hate hippies. But I love sex and shows. When I was a young man, I thought that the world was marvelous. Dreams of my youth. But soon came the day of my first adventure, and I discovered a dirty, dirty world.
And I asked the Lord, my mom. And the king and the answered, this is a dirty, dirty, dirty man. And old Emmy Lincoln was a mad one, trying to put Negroes into liberty. But he made war, not love. Killing thousands of what we loved white boys and the milky water of my old Mississippi became black, black, black. And old Lenin was a mad one. In 1917, has put fire into Great Russia and dirty mushiks invaded the pretty, pretty palace of my Tsar and the milky water of my dear Volga became red, red, red. And Alf Hitler was a mad one too, trying to rule over the whole world has killed millions from David's sons. And the sun didn't shine for a while. And the sun didn't shine for a while over my blue, blue Danube. Oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Tannenbaum, there will never be again a day for the Hitler's son. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.